<sighs> Judge you by the size of this crowd, looks like Florida's got a little drinking problem, huh? A <laughs> uh, little bit, a little bit. Uh, my name is Tommy T, and I am an alcoholic. Unfortunately, I am not a member of the West Connect group of Alcoholics Anonymous, uh, but I am a proud participating member of the Decker Avenue Step Group on Staten Island, New York. <clears throat> I've been a member there for 24 years, and uh, my sober date is April 8, 1995. In those 24 years, I've only wanted to leave that group probably 48, 50 times. <laughs> But I come from a strong line of sponsorship, and they tell me, just write it out. And when you're done with the resentment, you can leave. Just don't leave with the resentment. Well, you know what happens in the fourth column. We lose that resentment. We see it's all us. We're selfish. We're self-seeking. And you go back to home group, right? So, but I'll tell you, if you're ever visiting New York, and you make a wrong turn and end up on the Verrazano the wrong way, you'll find Staten Island. And I hope you come and visit us. Because we're a small group, but if you walk into our doors, you'll be greeted with a handshake. If you're suffering from alcoholism, you will not leave that group without a sponsor. If you stay with us, you're going to go through these 12 steps. You're going to learn about the traditions and the concepts, and you're getting it in the service structure, whether you like it or not. Because <laughs> that's what we do. Uh, I want to say some thank yous before we get started, because I've run a few of these event, events. I did some service up in New York Intergroup, and we do a Bill W. dinner dance every year that's about this size. And I know getting alcoholics together is kind of like herding cats, you know. It's a little difficult. But, Doug, you and your team, uh, I mean, I can't imagine what it was like under these circumstances with cancellations, with postponements, with everything else. My hat is off to you. So don't drink tomorrow, because we, we, you know, we need members like you. So if you can, this will enhance your sobriety. A year from now, you'll be laughing about it. Right now, you just want to get through it, right? Uh, to my host, Steve, and his wife, I mean, he actually took my line when he mentioned about the water, because our end of that story is he texted me what kind of water you want. And when it came back, you know, bubbling, sparkling, flavored, this and that. I showed my wife. We were watching Peaky Blinders on Netflix, you know. <laughs> That's how we roll. And uh, I just flashed her the phone, and she said, <laughs> aristocrats. And we both busted out laughing, you know. And then I put the, you know, New York City tap in. It's fine. And, uh, but we went to dinner last night. We had a wonderful time. I couldn't help but uh, think what a wonderful time it would have been with Cheryl. But uh, where else can you go out to dinner for the first time with people? And before the appetizers are delivered, you're, taught, you're sharing your arrest records. <laughs> and, and not just the men at the table, Val. All right, you know, so. I said, oh, my wife was arrested in sobriety too. You know, and it was just, just a great, great thing. We bonded instantly. I'm grateful. I'm grateful for the hosting. And uh, where's my girl, Gail? There she is. And Gail. Very important, you know, Gail. Gail, raise your hand. So Gail's responsible for getting me down here. So if I should say anything that offends anyone in any way, please see Gail after the meeting. <laughs> All right? And, uh, I can't really take criticism while I'm a sensitive alcoholic. But my hope tonight is I touch one. And if I touch you, just come up and say thanks. Because that's what this is about. And I never lose it. You know, we have fun. We kid around. But this is life and death. And uh, 
I'm sure Florida is the same as Staten Island is right now, but we're losing young men and women a day, one, one a day, every single day. And now that I'm 60 years old and 26 years sober, they were all my friends' kids. And it was almost my son. So, you know, I take Alcoholics Anonymous very, very seriously. I didn't always do so, uh, but I do now. I love this fellowship. I call it our unfair advantage, because I know of no other spiritual program, religious uh, movement, psychotherapy movement, uh, self-help program that guarantees a spiritual experience. And we replicate it over and over. And it is guaranteed if you do what we do and what that book tells us. And it's sufficient to overcome alcoholism and addiction. Amazing, amazing thing. And then there's that little bonus promise. It'll solve all your problems. And that's what I've found here with you folks. Uh, I didn't come to you willingly. <laughs> I don't think any of us, say, we're sitting at home with that trophy wife, just hit the lotto and say, hey, let me go find God in the church basement. <laughs> uh, New York City Police Department, the court system, a program called Treatment Against Crime, and uh, the fear of doing some time uh, brought me to Alcoholics Anonymous. And I didn't come willingly. I came kicking and scratching. I came denying and, and arguing with anybody that wanted to help me. And uh, it's tough doing it that way. So when we get to the recovery part of this story, <laughs> please don't think like, hey, I'm new. I can do all that shit he did. It's not a good, good advice, you know. I mean, uh, I always found it tough. Life was tough for me. I mean, I love, I love in, uh, I think it's Peck's uh, A Road Less Traveled. The first words in it, life is tough. It was tough for me. I just felt different. You know, I didn't feel like I fit in anywhere. I had an alcoholic family. My dad was a bad drinker, and uh, my mom couldn't, couldn't beat him, so she joined him there for a while. My sister was a drug addict. Uh, but even at that dinner table, when we were still eating dinner together, I felt different. I felt alone. You know, my sister used to tell me I was adopted. Maybe that had something to do with it, but uh, <laughs> older sisters are tough. And, uh, but I just never fit in, you know. Uh, I tried. I tried to fit in everywhere, but I fit in nowhere. And I always thought, like, something was wrong with me. Just a deep, deep down thing that something was wrong. Something was amiss. But I'll tell you, I hung the tough as long as I could without alcohol and other substances. But about age 11, uh, you know, I let loose and... A couple of kids in the neighborhood said, hey, Tom, we're going to get beers. You in? I'm like, mm, I'm in. And they said, well, you're going to need some money. No problem. I'll steal. <laughs> so, I mean, I had the mind already, you know. We rifled some pockets back then. It was no big deal. Got a couple of bucks. And back then, Staten Island was a, a trusting world, you know. The butcher used to write out your order on the, on the bag and add it up and say, hey, tell your mom I said hello, you know. And you didn't need money. They'd pay it at the end of the week, you know. So we forged a letter, uh, you know, please let Tom buy me Marlboro cigarettes and three quarts of beer. <laughs> Not a weird order coming from my house, I'm telling you. So, so we're walking to uh, me and these two guys named Jimmy. Yeah, it's an Italian neighborhood. And uh, we're walking to get these beers, and there's this junkie on the corner, Glenn. He's about 40 years old. He's into one of those nods where he's almost, you know, heads hitting the curb. And that was very out of context back in 1970. You weren't seeing that open. And the thing. he says, where are you guys going? And we said, we're going to get some beers. 
Drink them warm through a straw, you'll get messed up quicker. <laughs> All right. <laughs> That's my life's coach right there. I'm following those directions, you know. I come into AA like 23 years later, and a guy says, hey, son, get a sponsor. Do these 12 steps. Get a home group. I'm like, nah, nah, I got this. But that junkie on the corner, I'll follow him to the gates of hell and back, you know. And, uh, so we did that. We got warm beers. They were cheaper. And we got straws, and we got the cigarettes. I didn't smoke cigarettes, but uh, flashback in time, right? Well, I had that cut-off dungaree jacket on with Yes on the back, my favorite band back then. The hair was down about here. Had a boom box. It was an eight-track player. <laughs> to, to the kids, we'll explain this later, right? And the big album that year was Neil, Neil Young, Harvest, and uh, the, the song, The Needle and the Damage Done. We sung it poorly all night, you know. It was a Friday night, and we went down in the woods. This is what we do on Staten Island with a borough of parks, all right? So we go light fires, and we drink beers around them. And we were sitting around there, and we're singing and everything, and that first time I drank, the magic happened. You hear it from the podium all the time. Felt taller, felt better looking. Wasn't worrying about catching a beat, and when I got home, didn't matter. I was in the moment for the first time in those 11 years that I was on this planet. I felt good. I felt good. Unfortunately, I kind of overshoot good all the time. <laughs> all the time. Never stop at good. Got to go to sloppy, you know. And, uh, and my friends drank differently than I did that first time. Now, I didn't pick up on it that night. But some good sponsorship here in Alcoholics Anonymous in our big book, I see that I had that phenomenon of craving that very first night. So I had finished my, my beer, I drank a little faster than my friends, and they were capping their beers and putting them in the weeds. And I'm like, what are you doing? It's like alcohol abuse to me. What are you doing? Oh, we're saving it for tomorrow night. Tomorrow night's Saturday, Tom. And I said, the hell you are, I'll steal more money. What are you doing? And I push one kid down, I grab his, I start chugging it, it's all over my face. You know how we drink, right? And, uh, and go after the next guy, but I had made like a tactical error. I went after the smaller guy first. So after I got his down, I got that much sloppier, went after the bigger kid. Bigger kid pounded me to the ground, right? I wake up, it's 2 o'clock in the morning. I'm 11. I'm supposed to be home when the street lights go on, right? You know, I mean, I'm like, oh. I got blood on my lip. I got vomit on my jacket. I got a cigarette burn. I don't even smoke cigarettes. I'm like, instant blackout. I don't know what's going on. So the next day, i got to start playing alcoholic 20 questions, right? What happened last night? Did we have fun? Anybody get hurt? <laughs> Anybody see my radio? You know, like this is... This is and I, I played that same game the last night. We'll fast forward pretty quick. Uh, but I did not become an everyday drinker. But I can tell you I became an everyday thinker. I loved it. I absolutely loved it. And after I got my ass handed to me by my father, uh, I said, I'm going to do that again the first chance I get. I just might stay out all night this time. <laughs> you know, I'll just change it up a little bit. And uh, <clears throat> So the drinking was weekends, then it became Wednesday. I got a little boring. But I'll tell you, my attitude on life changed, and uh, it just didn't matter. It's unfortunate if you loved me, because you were going to get your heart broken. It's unfortunate if you trusted me, I was going to steal from you. I turned into a whole different person once I started chasing alcohol. Uh, there was a lot 
I mean, that, that story really sums up 23 years of my drinking career, up and down, everyday drinking, not everyday drinking, binging drinking, trying to control drinking, uh, but always thinking about drinking and always having to cover my tracks. I became an expert liar. I, am, I never took a polygraph, but I'm sure I could crush that thing <laughs> because I believe my stories. I mean, can you identify with I believe it. I can look at now. Somebody told a story about their kid, and no, the clothes on the floor, I, I get it, man, I get it. She's good, that's good. You know, but unfortunately, when the, the big book tells us about that tornado roaring through people's lives, it kind of sells it short, if you live the life I led. You know, the car accidents, nine car accidents, and total of nine cars in seven years, and never had a license to begin with, but didn't matter back then. You didn't even have to insure the cars back then. It wasn't a big deal. No computers. They couldn't catch up to you. A lot of broken relationships because women, I'm sorry, you just get in the way of my drinking. It just happens. Friendships, couldn't have friendships because I stole from all my friends. There was terminated pregnancies where I would be a big man and pay for it, but not big of a man to go and support that woman. I put a young, young boy up for adoption when I was 17 years old because I got my childhood sweetheart pregnant and the parents weren't going to have anything to do with a guy like me. And uh, so that baby was born and his name was Matthew. He's 43 today. Uh, and I've never met him. I'm on every website trying to find him, but it didn't matter. It would have slowed me down, possibly. 1985, I got married. Because many of my, parent, my friends were get going to college, graduating college, getting good jobs, doing all these things. And I said, marriage, marriage will fix me. <sighs> okay, she was pregnant, but I, I, I did go along with it. I did go along with it. <clears throat> we got married, and uh, that marriage lasted six weeks. I always say I gave her the best six weeks of my life. <laughs> but I ran out on her, eight, eight months pregnant, never to look back, and to abandon a son for seven years. I'm not proud to stand in front of a crowd this size and tell you that, but I think it's, it's fair to tell you what you have in front of you tonight. It still hurts me to say it. But I can tell you Alcoholics Anonymous has turned that stuff around. How does an alcoholic deal with doing that kind of stuff? You see, because we start out to drink to feel good. At the end of my drinking, I drank because I had to. I could not live with the guilt and shame. I could not live with the feelings that I felt on a daily basis. I had to numb them. There was no other way to do it. So on Father's Day, I'd get twice as drunk. On Christmas, I'd get three times as drunk. And if a bartender, if it was a slow night at the bar and he had to listen to me, I'd tell him what a bitch that woman was not letting me see my kid. Wouldn't tell him I'm a deadbeat dad. I'm going to leave that out. Is that really lying if you leave something out like that? I didn't think so. And that's the kind of life I was leading. It was pitiful. I had a, a bout from 1990 to 1995 with control and drinking, or attempting to control drinking. And I'll give you a little snapshot of that, and then we'll get to the good stuff. We'll get to the good dope here, the recovery stuff. But, uh, you know, so what did it look like for me? I would, I would, you know, have a little trouble and I wouldn't drink for a while and things would be going great and I'd say, come on, 
you're making too much of this alcoholism thing. Can't be that bad. Now, no recovery at this point. A few DWIs, some alcohol awareness trophies. You know, you get them when you graduate in class. I had three of those. I could probably teach that class. And, uh, <clears throat> but it would look like this. I'm 30 years old at this point, and I'm going. I'm drinking in the neighborhood bar, the Armory Inn, real class joint. You know, sawdust on the floor, shuffleboard table. You know, three 60-year-old men in there any, any night of the weekend. Tom, you know, and, uh, with my tank top on because I'm in good shape. It's a horror show, believe me. Uh, it gets worse. And, uh, you know, so Friday night I go up, and back then we're drinking Jack, shots of Jack Daniels, short beer with it, pop them down. Just going to have a few. That never works out. You know what a few is like to this crowd, right? And, uh, but I'll tell you, you know, uh, if a young lady came in the bar, well, let me rephrase it. If any lady came in the bar, I got an apartment right down the street. Oh, you're having problems with your husband. Oh, yeah, men can be like that. I hate that. I just hate that. Oh, you need directions. Here, let me show you. Yeah. So we'd have a romantic evening down in that little dive of an apartment I had. And, uh, you know, we'd grab a six-pack to go, but that was about it. They're not as alcoholic as I am. And a funny thing would happen. I wouldn't go out. I would wake up. They still like me. <laughs> it's amazing. I know her name, I take her to breakfast, I open the car door, because that's what my grandmother taught me I do, pay for breakfast, drive her home, and then I'm saying to myself, maybe I am making too much about this. So I'll go back out Saturday night, my mind's spinning the whole time. Sit in that same stool, order that same Jack Daniels, that same beer, but no woman comes in. So now the bar's closing up at about two or three, and I love the term that, that Bill uses. So I would just go seeking the most sordid places on earth because that's where my peeps are, you know, uh, either for female company or other substances. And uh, I'd wake up. It'd be Tuesday. I got this cross-dressing dude next to me in the bed. I don't know how that happened. Both times. You know, that was my worst shameful thing. And to say it in front of a crowd like this is, I was just laughing at the growth that comes in AA. <laughs> but it's Tuesday. I didn't call into work on Monday. I didn't call into work on Tuesday. I would go outside, but the drug dealer's got my car. I don't know where I am. I got to look at street signs. I reach into my pocket and I say, oh, oh, there's some paper there. Good, I got some money to get home. I pull it out, and there's five ATM slips. I wiped out the bank book as well. I can't even pay my rent. That went on for five years. And I would stay briefly sober, depending on what the debacle was, right? You crack up the car, everybody cracks up a car. Two weeks, right? Well, I had a fist fight in the neighborhood bar. That's not good. I beat up a 65-year-old. I felt real bad about that. Uh, a month. You know, waking up with Alex, eh, a couple of months. You know, that was bad. That was bad. That was a bad one, but uh, that brought me to April 6, 1995, and I went out for a few with the guys. I don't really have the whole story, so I won't tell it, because I was in a blackout. But I woke up, and I was in uh, the Brooklyn House of Detention. I know my friend Pete knows the Brooklyn House of Detention. I like to call it my rehab. <laughs> and uh, I'm in a cell with 30 guys, and I still feel different, because they know why they're in there. 
I'm playing alcoholic 20 questions with the CO. What are the charges? What happened? Guns? I had a gun? I was like, Jesus. Drugs? Okay, I usually have drugs. Okay. <laughs> and drunk driving for a third time. And, uh, I just couldn't believe that I did it again. I did it again. But I had no intention of coming to you folks. None. What I did was I, I figured I'd formulate a plan well enough to get me back and put the Band-Aids on and come back and try it a different way yet again. Unfortunately, uh, the courts had different things for me. So they threatened me with a year, year in jail because I had a loaded handgun in my belt with one in the chamber. And uh, that was mandatory year in jail in New York. <clears throat> and uh, this kid doesn't do jail time well. I, I turn into about a three-year-old girl screaming when I'm in jail. I'm not a tough guy here at all. Thought I was, but you, know, you guys broke that down real quick. The old-timers do that fast. Uh, but that whole time, they made me go to uh, intensive outpatient program, and everybody suggested AA, suggested AA, and I just fought it tooth and nail. But then they, you know, they graduate you through that pretty quick, that program, and uh, they said, go to AA. And I went with this one guy, Mark, and I went to a meeting, and I went at two minutes to eight. It was an eight o'clock meeting. I left at nine. Uh, when, some, when the old timers started in the back, and they said, oh, let's go in the back. And I couldn't even say, my name is Tommy T. I'm an alcoholic. I was so full of fear, I ran out of the meeting. Six foot two, probably about 225 at that time in the gym, five days a week. And I was such a scared little boy. And I had to show everybody how tough I was, but it wasn't going that way. And fast forward a little bit more, I started to go to some meetings. It started to get me a little bit. I didn't feel so different with you folks. The magic didn't happen in the room with me. It happened at the diner. Staten Island old timers, they weren't bigger on steps, but they were big on fellowship. And they would take me to the diner and they would listen to my newcomer nonsense for hours on end. Steve, you had me dying. I, my whole first year, I can't tell you how many times old guys hung up on me. <laughs> and that, what do you mean? I was in the middle of a story, right? Uh, but these guys listened, and they listened, and they told me what they had been through. And it just made me feel okay. The problem was, I had 22 other hours a day to live. So when you guys told me one day at a time, I thought I was back in prison. I'm looking at the clock every five minutes. My knuckles are so white, I'm going to lose it soon. I'm going to drink again. I know that in my head, and I'm fighting it one day at a time. Some circumstances happened on the job. <clears throat> I was all about the money, getting the bookies paid off, the loan sharks. I was 38000 in debt to the attorneys, everything else. It was all about the material, nothing about recovery. And I got a job promotion uh, offer. They knew nothing about what had happened. And my, a guy I was talking to in AA told me, put everything down. We here in AA, we, we take, take control of our lives and we, we take responsibility for our lives. So I put those arrests down. I wrote everything down. And uh, God fired me. <laughs> you know, he said, put it in God's hands. Well, God fired me. It was the worst thing that ever happened to me. Looking back to me now, the best thing that ever happened. God has different plans than I do. And... Uh, See, I was so focused on the money, so focused on lying, so focused on doing all the things and not getting any better in recovery that it was all about that and nothing about this. So I'm sharing at a men's meeting at night, and I'm saying, 
I just lost a 17-year career with the Department of Education. I wish I could go back in time and slap that kid for, what the, for the way I took that meeting hostage, you know? And these guys are just shaking their heads, and all of a sudden, three guys come up to me. I call them the ninjas of sponsorship. They were about 60, 65 years old. One guy was uh, Lucky George, bald-headed bookie, covered in tats, rough-looking guy, smoking a cigar. Another guy was Keep It Simple Richard, New York City firefighter, retired. And then there was this little guy, Cocaine Vinny. <laughs> and they said, hey, God wants you on the golf course tomorrow. I said, you didn't hear what I shared. I don't have any money for golf. I just lost my career. They said, we didn't ask you for a financial statement. We asked you to play golf. We'll be at your house at 8 o'clock. Now, if you hear these guys tell this story, they had this all set up. They saw me slipping. They saw me going away from AA. And they said, we got to grab this kid. And they grabbed me. And they held me hostage. Golf takes about four or five hours on Staten Island. If you're lucky, it could go six hours, you know. And uh, what I didn't know about that is this guy, Lucky George, had just gone through a big book workshop. And my boy was on fire, on fire. So here we are, we're teeing up at this country club. I know we got some golfers in the room. And there's a certain lingo to golf, you know. And uh, I'm on the first tee, I'm a little nervous about where I'm going to hit. You know how self-aware you are, you're thinking everybody's looking at you and everything. And I'm up there ready to tee up and little vitty. You know, Tom, really, have we seen a person fail who's thoroughly followed our path? And I'm like... (laughs) What's this got to, I'm trying to figure out where I'm going to hit the ball, Vin. What's, what's the point of that statement? You know, I don't know. I don't know the big book, that's for sure. I didn't even know you guys had one, for Christ's sake. And then I, I hit my little slice into the woods, and Richard comes walking in with me, and he says to me, you know, while we're looking for this ball, it only takes a little honesty, open-mindedness, and willing, Tom, and you can have what we got. I said, I'd like to have my ball, Rich. You know, that's, that's the main thing here. And then at the ninth hole, they did the big switch. They put me in the cart uh, car with George. There was something different about George. He was happy. I wasn't happy. And George told me something that nobody in AA ever told me before. He said, Tom, I guarantee you, you never have to feel like this again. I said, really, guarantee? I said, yeah. He says, look, I've been watching you, and I think you're going to drink. And I looked at him, and I remember this clear as day. I said, I'm not going to drink. I'm going to kill myself. But I'm too much of a coward to do that. He says, well, that would be a pretty permanent solution to a temporary problem, Tom. (laughs) Many of us have gone worse than losing a job. There's actually three billion people in China that don't even know you got fired. You know, he just started hitting me with that corny AA stuff that really kind of snaps us back. And he said, "Uh, are you willing to come to my house one or two nights a week and read the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. He said, I promise you, I will not tell you anything to do. I do not have a program of recovery. I follow the one that AA laid out for us, and it works just fine. I have a lot of daddy issues, a lot of authority issues, so I, was, I did not have a sponsor. So when he told me we're going to do what the book says, I said I can do that. He said, look, I'll cook, I'll cook dinner. Uh, I'm going to give you a tape. It was a tape of a Joe Hawk uh, big book workshop in, in California. It was a cassette tape, another thing we'll have to explain to some of the younger folks. But, and he said, whatever we read that night, you'll reinforce it with this. Are you willing to do that? 
I heard free dinner. I was unemployed. I said, I'm in. And I knew he could cook, you know. And that began the journey with George. And uh, I'm telling you, it was miraculous. And I hope yours was too. Because I started to get hope. See, I wasn't doing it for the court anymore. I wasn't doing it for an ex-wife anymore. I wasn't doing it just to see my kid. I wasn't doing it just to BS the court system. I was doing it because I thought I was going to kill myself. And I would get excited when Tuesdays and Thursdays came up. And I was going to George's house. I just knew I was going to feel good when I was with George. And, you know, we opened up that book and we read the prefaces. And the way we went through was we turned statements into questions. And he turned their book into my book. Does Tom like the effect produced by alcohol? Yeah, I never drank for the taste, man. Give me the buzz. If I could just get the buzz without the taste, I'd be fine, you know. And he just kept going over things like that. Does Tom, did you drink like this? Did you drink like that? And I remember he stopped during the uh, doctor's opinion. And he said, what's the matter? My mouth must have dropped open or something. And I said, I can't believe they wrote this book about me, 39, in 1939. See, because there it was laid out in front of me. Many good willing therapists, many good willing psychiatrists, many, many good meaning people tried to explain to me about drinking. But if you're not an alcoholic, you ain't got nothing to say to me. You don't know. These guys that wrote this book knew. <laughs> and they knew us well. So I really started to like, get psyched up about it. And I got, you know, like when you got paid and you knew you were going to the bar, you're not drunk yet. You have nothing in your system yet. You just know, I got some money. I'm driving to the bar. Things are going to be okay. That's how I felt going to George's house. And it was awesome. And it was awesome. And we spent a lot of time on step one. George made sure I had no reservation of any time. And when I did give him a little lip, he said, well, it seems like you're running your life very well right now as you sit on my couch listening to and reading the big book. You know, he would just chop me down to size every time. And I had to go along with it. So when we got into step two, you know, my agnostic or atheist side creeped up and I confused religion with spirituality and George told me what I heard somebody say before well you believe I believe you can use my God he's a big God he could take on another lunatic like you and you know what I don't know that I was willing to believe in a power greater than myself I was willing to believe and it was positively proven to me without a doubt that I could not do the job so I said yeah I'm willing okay Thursday comes, we're on our, on our hands and knees on the floor, we're holding hands, my hands are clammy, they're shaking, I mean like marriage day clamping, you know, shaking, I mean I'm nervous with this guy, I'm praying, this is all really weird to me that we're doing this stuff, and we say that third step prayer and I did not understand what I was signing up for, and I'm glad. Because if you would have told me I was going to have to do service the rest of my life and serve God's kids and, and do things like that, I would have ran out of there like my hair was on fire. But we got up from that prayer, and the miracle of my third step was we sat down with a book and we wrote an inventory. You know, I get, I get people coming into my, our home group is a 12 and 12 group, and we talk about the steps every week, and I got people to come in. I've been in my fourth step for seven months. <laughs> oh, no, you haven't. You're balking for seven months, you know. Oh, it's such a tough experience. Yeah, unless you balance it against reliving it over and over and over, it might be tough. I hear a lot of things out there with people that don't have an experience with finishing a fourth step. It was not a horrible experience for me. There was nothing that went on that paper that I didn't know, but I was just blocking out. 
took me nine days to write a four-column uh, inventory. I had 31 resentments for an alcoholic father, 29 resentments for a mother who smothered me and would not leave the only man she ever loved to make my life better. I got into that fourth column and I started to look at what type of son I was. They started to melt for me. I just had a different view on life. This is before I even shared it. And I wrote that fear inventory and I told George, George, I could have saved a lot of time. I'm afraid of everything and everybody. And I thought I was a tough guy. He laughed. He said, yeah, me too. Chewing on like a tipperello, you know, like the, the way he did. And it was great. And then we got to the relationship inventory and 23 names went on that inventory. He told me to stick to the substantial relationships. And on Staten Island, the definition of substantial relationship is you knew the woman's last name. <laughs> right? That's, that's a, we're going to put the rest of them in one category of one-night stands. Right? This was the one that changed a lot in my head. Because when it came to you folks, if you asked me, Tom, why can't you stay in a relationship, I would have said, I don't know. I'm attracted to the craziest women there are. And I would have meant it. I'm still attracted. My wife is crazy. And she's not here, so I can say this. You know, it's wonderful. Don't anybody tell her. All right? All right. She doesn't listen to my talk, so it's great. Um, but the thing was, I saw that I was one common denominator through the whole thing. I had an approach to relationships that was, let's go to bed, and then we can figure out if we like each other. And there was a lot of harm caused there. A lot of harm. But we come out of that, we share it, we go to a place called Mount Marissa. Pete, I know you spoke there in early days in retreats. Sign of the times, they knocked it down and they built condos just recently. But they had this wonderful grotto there and they had this mountain with like 30, 75 steps up there and that's where we chose to do the fifth step. George got there early and prayed up. I got there and took out my book and I said, I can't tell them this. Can't tell them this. Can't tell them this. I rip out three pages of my, put it under the seat of the car and come up like a good little sponsee, ready to go. Do about two and a half hours of this drivel and George looks at me and he says, Tom, is that it? I said, that's it, George. I told you I was a good liar. George saw right through that. He gives me a big hug. He said, man, I am having a blast taking you through these steps. So he said, uh, but do me a favor, Tom. If when you're getting quiet with a God for an hour, if anything else comes up, please give me a call. Don't leave anything on, on the table. We're only as sick as, sick as our secrets here. I'm like, he must know. <laughs> you know. So I'm walking down those steps, and his, he stays on the mountain. It's like his eye, eyes are piercing the back of my head. And I'm like, the devil and angel? Tell him, don't tell him. Tell him, don't tell him. You know, the mind's spinning as ours does. And uh, I'm like, nope, nope, not telling him, not telling him. Talking to myself, going down the stairs. Get in my car. I put my key in the car. Turn it on, and I'm... Some of you have had experiences like this. Some will just say, ah, he's full of shit. <laughs> but uh, I felt the warmth come up from under my seat. And it was a warm day already, so it, it was like hot coming up. And I just shut my car off. I grabbed those pages out, and I opened the door, and I said, hey, George, wait up. <laughs> come on up, kid. 
And I went up there and I, I gave them my lowlights, three pages of the worst stuff I've done in my life, some of which you've heard tonight, but stealing from a grandmother that was dying of cancer. And the last words I said to my grandmother, who loved me as much as anybody in this world, I lied to her about that, about being a deadbeat dad, about putting that child up for adoption. It all came out. And you know what happened? While I was saying that, George said things to me like, yeah, that never works out well for guys like us. Guys like us. He actually said to me one time, he said, you know, I never got to do that. I have no identification. But it sounds like fun. <laughs> this was my worst stuff. And he made it like it was nothing. And then he hugged me and he said, so my house tomorrow night for six and seven, I'm cooking pasta. I said, I'll be there, brother. This guy knew everything about me and invited me back into his home. That was the miracle of five for me. And when I went home that night, I put my head on that pillow, and there was no committee in my head. I went to sleep. Can you imagine that? Without like an hour and a half of tossing and turning, it was a new experience for me, sober. Wonderful. We went, we did six and seven. I'm going to tell you, I didn't know anything about six and seven. Most powerful two paragraphs in the big book scanned right over this kid's head. I didn't know anything. But I followed directions, and I said that third-step prayer, that seventh-step prayer every day. And I went to a lot of meetings, and I started to try to help guys that were just starting out in the steps. And I became less, less dishonest. I became less fearful. Things started to happen in steps six and seven just by saying that prayer. And then we go on to eight and nine. I wrote a list. The list was no problem. I had 96 people on that first list, many of them women and things around that. But there were some rough characters on there in the life that I led. And uh, I got paralyzed in fear, and I said, I can't go through with this. So what do you do? Stop going to the meeting George goes to. <laughs> don't call him. Don't answer him when you see his number come up on caller ID. Caller ID was new back then. It was on the house, the house phones. And uh, I got sick real quick. About eight, nine days, I'm thinking about drinking again. So I sheepishly go down to this meeting called the Randall Manor meeting, the beginner's meeting. <clears throat> And they have tables, and I shared about my experience that I was afraid to do it because it was only five of us, and nobody was doing the steps. So they said, ah, let it wait, let it wait. You're moving too quick. You know, it's exactly what I wanted to hear. But then I go outside, and we're fellowshipping afterwards, and Postman Bobby, with about 30 years, comes walking by. He says, hey, Tommy, I heard you're doing the 12 steps with George. Would you like to come down and speak at St. Mark's Step on Saturday? I said, sure, I will. He says, well, we're speaking on the ninth step. Well, i got to tell you, I have an eight-step list, but I haven't done any. The fellowship, this is where the power comes in. He pats me on the back. He says, well, you got three days. Make a few amends. Let us know how they turn out. And he walks away. And now I'm hanging out with my road dogs, right? We're all smoking Marlboros one after another. And uh, they're like, oh, and we'll be there, too. Can't wait to hear this, you know. I called George up. He says, I was hoping you'd call. Come on over, man. We'll review what you got to do. Read the ninth step again, and I did the best I could with my new outlook on life and made amends with my mom, my dad, my sister, and I wrote a letter to my grandmother. And, uh, boy, moms are great to start with. I just poured my heart out to that poor woman. Stole money from her, pushed her down one time, just broke into the house, sold jewelry, I mean, everything. And, you know, we were trained back then to say, these are the homes I'm clear on. Is there anything that you would like to tell me that affected you in a different way I'm unaware of? And my mother said, oh, you left out a bunch. 
my mom suffered from MS and she was losing her ability to walk and she was going into a wheelchair. She was in a very abusive relationship for a lot of years with my father. And she said, Tom, I knew you were stealing the money, but I thought if it could get you out of this house, even for a night, it was worth it. 29 resentments for that woman fell when she said that to me. She said, and since you've been sober, I've been living my life through you. I am so proud of you, son. You protected me from your dad when you got older. You were the only one that came to see me in the hospital. And she f picked out those small little things that, we, that I might have done over the years and just gave me, hit me with love. I missed my mom. Went to my sister, went to my father in a bar, not so eventful. After I finished pouring my heart out to my dad, he said, don't you have to go make coffee for those assholes? <laughs> yeah. I was going to a meeting, and he knew that. But then I went up to, uh, I'm on my way to the St. Mark Step Group, and I have a letter, a very brief letter that my sponsor and I wrote to my grandmother. But unfortunately, I went to my grandma's wake, but I could not bring myself to watch her be buried. So I went to the bar instead, big sacrifice. And, uh, I didn't know where she was buried. I knew the, uh, the area and, and the cemetery, but I didn't know exactly where. So I parked my car, and I'm walking up and down the, uh, the aisles there. It's a bright, sunny day, and, and I'm, i got to get to this meeting. i got to get to this meeting. And uh, I said, i got to go to the meeting. I'll have to speak about the three that I did. It's more about me looking good talking about the amends than making the amends. I have to be honest there. I walk on a diagonal back to my car. Right next to the passenger door on my car is Anna K. Geraldson, my, my grandmother. The hair on my neck stood up. I looked. I pulled out the note. I'm a literate guy. I can read. I couldn't read the letter. I started blubbering like a three-year-old kid that he just took his favorite toy away. That kind of stuff. People were walking by me like, what's going on over there? You know, and, but it was, Grandma, I am so sorry that when you passed into the next place that you saw me as the kid that I was. You did everything for me in life, and I spit in your face. I'm going to make it up to you, and I believe that you can see me. I'm praying now. I'm in Alcoholics Anonymous now. I'm going to make you proud of me, Grandma. That was it. What else are you going to do? And I put that letter back in my pocket, and I drove down to the meeting. I don't remember walking to the car. I don't remember driving to the meeting. We had beepers back then. I looked at my beeper for 15 minutes and gave this group 15 minutes on those four amends, and I stopped. What I do remember is I had about 15 members of Alcoholics Anonymous come after me after that meeting and say, what are you doing? You're a different man. Whatever it is you're doing, do not stop. And in hindsight, I point back to that day when my attitude and outlook changed on, on the world. And it says that in the book, line for line. That was the day. I went on a tear making my amends. I was unemployed. I couldn't get to enough people. People were like, get out of the way. Taraco's making amends. You know, they're, they're hiding from me because I'm just trying to grab everybody, you know. And Corny George says to me, Tom, don't you have to make an amends to the Department of Education? Yeah, George, I was hoping the court case would be over by the time I did that. And George says, oh, you'd like to manipulate the process rather than trust God? 
I said, all right, all right, I'll make amends. Can't get to this guy. He's the CEO of the Division of School Facilities for the Department of Education. I worked for him for 17 years at, on the lowest level. He was big shot. George tells me, put your best suit on, <laughs> the one I wore to court, right? We only had one. Go to his office at 7 o'clock and you wait for him and ask him if he'll see you. I did not know that the bosses come in at 10. I spent three hours of alcoholic insanity torture in that man's office in the waiting room waiting for this guy, thinking, oh, there's the window they talk about they're going to throw me through, you know, and all this stuff. And he comes bopping in. I said, uh, Jim, uh, Tom Taracco, can you have a couple minutes for me? He said, Tom Taracco? Hmm. <laughs> I got your case on my desk. Come on in. We'll talk. I'm like, this is a big, the Department of Education in New York is big. Why has he got my folder on his desk, right? I'm not that big of a deal. And he says, listen, man, I'm not the deciding factor here. What do you got to say? And I said, well, Jim, I'm a member of Alcoholics Anonymous for almost two years now. And uh, I need to tell you when we first discussed the arrest, I lied to you about everything but my name. He slumped his glasses down and said, Really? I said, yeah, that was my gun. They were my drugs. I was driving drunk that night. I've had a real bad problem with alcohol my whole life. And I said, I wish you could stop there, but I've stolen time from you. I've stolen tools from the jobs. I've punched other employees in and out. Uh, I've had parties inside New York City schools. I've, I've done a lot of bad things. And uh, if I ever get a chance to make it up to you, I would. And he said, that's interesting. He said, uh... You know I'm a deacon? Swear to God, I did not know what a deacon was. <laughs> I had to look it up, and there was no iPhone to look it up on. I had to wait until I got home to find out what a deacon was. He said, yeah, I do service in a church upstate. He said, we don't find God because things are good. Mine was alcohol, too. But I never found AA. I went to the Catholic Church. I said, that's cool. He said, so I know what it took for you to come in here and say this today. He said, I'm not the decision maker, but if you do get your job back, you make sure you come back up here, because I'll tell you exactly what you've got to do to make this right. I said, I'll do that, Jim. I walked out of there on fire, man. I said, this is great, you know. Kept going, making amends. All of a sudden, a case that was stalled dead. I get an appearance to, to go to hear my fi final judgment on my career. And I go up, and I sit in front of attorneys for two hours, and they pound me on the stand. And I am being honest. My sponsor told me, you take your two years coins, because I had my anniversary, and then I had to go for this. And you just rub a hole in your pocket. You rub a hole in that coin, and you tell them the truth. God will put you where he wants. And now I'm believing it. Right? That's the difference. There's the shift in the, eight, in the ninth step. I'm believing it. God's with me. Oh, I hope they got another chair next to me when I sit down, you know, because he's going to need it. God's coming. He needs a place to sit, you know. I'm going in there, and these guys are pounding me, and I'm giving them answers like, boom, I'm not going to jail. This is just about a job. This is easy. I could wear my jewelry to this and everything, right? It's not like we think we're going away or anything. And I'm just answering them. I'm sorry. I don't recall. I was in a blackout. I'm a real bad drinker when I drink, you know, and I'm just, I'm not denying anything. I'm putting it all out there. But I went with our AA folder. The guys I was sponsoring, my home group members, and my sponsor, and they read that. I talked about AA, and uh, at the end they said, Mr. Tarako, 
Are you telling us that you have not ingested any drugs or alcohol since April 8, 1995? Now, my sponsor gave me this line, I am not the shark. I said, listen, I appreciate the time that you gave me today, but there's a couple of things that you can't take from me. You took my job, but I am unwilling to give you this. And the arbiter said, what is that? I said, this is my two years sobriety coin I just celebrated last week. And I said, you can't take my dignity. Alcoholics Anonymous has given me that back. With that, the arbiter gives me a wink. <laughs> to this day, I don't know if he was gay or if he was one of us. I, I just I don't know how that went. And it doesn't really matter. Because in 10 minutes, they came back with a ruling. We thought it was going to be ours. And they said, well, Mr. Taraco, we, we appreciate the way you stood up on the, on the stand today and answered all our questions. They said, we're going to give you a union job back. And that's all we were asking for. And they said, but we were most impressed with the way that you're turning your life around and the fact that you're willing to help others. Uh, we were impressed with your honesty and integrity here today. And since you've jumped through every hoop that we've asked you to do and never been late, we're going to give you $17,000 in back pay. You ever know anybody that got 17 grand for going through nine steps? I'm that guy. But then he said to me, he said, we're also going to let you have that promotion you were going for if you can stay clean for another year which I did easily, which I did happily because of you folks. And I went back to Jim. And Jim said, I'm going to call on you at some point. But in the meantime, I want you to go back, and I don't want you to be a civil service employee. You get there early. You stay late. If anybody needs your help, you help them. You work through lunch hour if you need to. And maybe in 17 years, you'll make it up. And I said, I can do that, Jim. I thought I was getting off easy. I went back and started working my ass off because of Jim. Promotions came fast and furious. Uh, I put in for another job, and it was prone to uh, bribes with the, uh, with the mob, the concrete workers in, in New York. Jim Lonigan's got my resume and another guy with exactly the same credentials. And he says to, I, I was told this later, give it to Taraco. If he takes money, he'll drink. We'll know right away. That started a friendship and a mentorship with this man that I just came up as his right hand. Jim retired about 15 years ago when they gave me his job. I've suppressed that since then. This is an amazing, amazing program. And it's not about the material stuff at all. All I have to do is focus on my AA. Focus on God. And everything else comes out to a place better than I could ever imagine. Ever imagine. There was never a prayer in my life that said, please, God, send me a crazy alcoholic woman with three kids. <laughs> Just never happened. Never came out of my lips. I was thinking more brass pole, good talents, you know, but. <laughs> and after being soured with my relationship history, I was just sour on dating in AA. And then God sent me Cheryl. He sent my best friend, 
and I wish she was here. You know, Polly, this afternoon I was crying with you because you and Dave have the life that me and Polly look up to. You are a living example of vision for you. It's awesome. And every time I see you, young lady, I fall in love with you all over again. Like you did in your talk, I'd like to talk a little bit about sponsorship and then I'll, we'll get to the ice cream, the good stuff. I know everybody's jonesing for that. So. But George remained my sponsor through 10, 11, and 12. And how blessed are we to look at ourselves, our actions, and not be dependent on what people think of us or, or what they're doing. Because my family's still real sick. They just don't affect me the way they once did. I know what kind of man I am today. I'm a man of integrity. I'm a sober man in Alcoholics Anonymous. I can look any man and woman in the eye today because of that night step. And I take inventory every single day. I pray, I meditate, I write nightly inventory. And all I want to do is be a better husband and a better father. And how does God make the previous life that I led right? Cheryl came to our marriage with three kids. I came with one. We got the coolest blended family you ever want to meet. They all call me dad. Does that make it right? I don't know. Makes it right to me. My stepson, who I call my son, and not stepson, it's only stepson to explain the difference to you folks. Out of the clear blue, he's a, he's a linebacker up in Albany. He sends me a CD. He said, listen, I was listening to some country music, and I thought of you. It's a guy, Elvis Shire, and the song is My Boy. And I played this thing on my iPhone at work, and I'm the boss at work, and I'm crying like a little kid, man. Just talks about a stepdad and his, and his son's relationship. How do you get stuff like that? Not based on my will, you know. I run. It's the best I can come up with. But I was blessed after George stopped sponsoring me to go with a man named Joe Keegan. Joe Red. Joe Red was 17 years sober when he went through these 12 steps. He went through the same exact time I was going through with George. He was an angry biker dude with a long beard and the scarf and the leather jacket and the whole nine yards. Should have probably showered a little more than he did. And I used to listen to him go on and on about problems he created in his life. And then I see him, and he's cleanly shaven. His hair's parted on the side, bright red hair. He's got wire-rimmed glasses, and he's sharing about that he's studying to be a Montessori kindergarten teacher. I'm like, I'm having an experience over here, but this is sick, you know? So I asked Joe to be my sponsor, and he agreed. What a wonderful journey for 23 years. Joe passed away in November uh, to cancer and uh, congestive heart failure. It was tough. He wanted me to call every Tuesday at 9.30 and share my inventory with him, and he wouldn't let me stop. And when you're sharing the nonsense that we come up with on a day with a man who's dying, it's just not comfortable. And I said, Joe, do you really want to do this? And Joe said, the half hour I'm listening to you, I don't have to be thinking about me. Yeah, unless you fire me, you've got to make your call. And I made that call. 
Six days before he passed, I called him. His voice sounded terrible. I said, you okay to do this, pal? And he said, I can listen. We put, to, we put together a, a group of all his sponsees. We had 13 men, a lot in Ohio and Kentucky. And we Zoomed together every Saturday morning at 9 o'clock. And Joe would join us when he could. Two weeks before he passed, we said, hey, let's get all the sponsees and the sponsees. We had 85 men on the Zoom that paid tribute to a guy that changed all our lives. It's the most awesome thing I have ever been a part of in AA. And when Joe went, I ended up picking up a few of his guys, a couple of the other guys picked up. But we went through it together. We went through it together. And Joe made me promise that I would have another sponsor in 30 days. He said, Tom, you're in need of adult supervision. (laughs) And I did that. And I made a list and I made some calls and not all worked out. But then I called Jimmy, the guy behind your tape booth today, and I said, Jim, Jim's my service sponsor. I said, Jim, I'm striking out here. I don't know what to do, man. He says, just pray, man. Just pray. The answers, the answers will come. I'm praying, literally in the, in the midst of praying, and my phone rings. Hey, Tommy T, Harold L. What are you doing? I need you to do a big book workshop with some men out here. I put my hand on the phone. I said, not this guy, God, please. (laughs) I don't know if you folks know how long, but he is like the busiest guy in AA. And I said, yeah, Harold, I'd be honored to do it with you. By the way, you got time to take another guy on? I'll be proud to walk this journey hand in hand with you, Tommy T. I'm like, Jesus how does this kid from New York get, hit, get hooked up with a bow-hunting pasta from Missouri? I mean, God's got some sense of humor. He, he, he goes on to treat me like I got 90 days. He says, you know, we're going to have this little covenant. He said, we've got to be honest with each other. And if you see me doing anything outside the realm of AA or God, you're going to tell me. And I'm going to do the same with you. And I said, I'm on board with that. We call it spiritual consent in New York. And you guys are a little weird in the Midwest, but that's okay. And then he said, do you mind if I take your wife's phone number? And I said, no. He says, because if I don't think you're telling the truth about your marriage, I'm going to give her a call. I said, well, you'll probably get a different side of the story, but I'm willing to give you that number. And how about those children you're always talking about? Can I have their numbers as well? I said, yeah. Yeah, you can. I'm like, <laughs> and I'm talking to, but like I got a sponsor, right? Like, so I'm, I'm psyched about it. And he says, you got any commitments in AA? And I puff up my chest and I say, yes, I am the uh, treasurer at my home group. It might not be the West Connect group, but it's a good home group. It's a good home group. And, uh, and I said, I'm the service sponsorship chair for Staten Island General Services. I said that with pride. And you know what he, he said? No, no, I mean real commitments. So are you going to the jails or the institutions? <laughs> no, Harold, but I'll call into group. Yeah, okay, let me know what they got for you. Click. I'm like, oh. That was about six months ago. And it's just wonderful.
we could never replace Joe Keegan. But Harold's a, Harold's a trip. That beautiful wife of mine that you heard about, Joe died in November. I turned 61 in December. And she knows that uh, I was due to retire a lot of years ago, but because of the, the kids and everything in college, I, I d decided to keep working. And uh, she bought me this really nice watch for my 61st birthday. It was one that I was going to buy myself five years ago if I retired. And I opened the box on Christmas morning. The kids were taking videos and everything. And I said, well, this is beautiful. I, I can't imagine that, you know, you got this. She's, she's doing well in real estate. And she said, look at the inscription. And I turned it over and it said, WWJD. To our Christian friends, that means what, did, what would Jesus do? To this alcoholic, it means, what would Joe do? <laughs> it's the same thing. I busted out crying. But my hope for the future, this is my little hope speech, is that I can always act like Joe was watching. That I will always be at my home group early, trained with my eye on that front door. I'll talk football with everybody. I'll kid around with the young girls and everything and have fun. I'm like a father figure now. It's not a real great role, you know. <laughs> I still think I got a shot, but no, they calling me pops and stuff, you know. But, uh, but my eye is trained on that door for the guy or the woman that's looking down, that just doesn't think there's an ounce of hope out there. I'll stay after I'll talk to them. I will exchange numbers with them. I don't just give my number to anybody. I will exchange numbers with you because I know how hard it was to make that first phone call. We're going to bring you in to a wonderful home group and wonderful people who will love you until you love yourself enough. I will always go to my AA commitments. I take them very serious. I dress to impress when I go to the rehabs. By the way, I got a men's rehab long term every other Wednesday night from the intergroup. And I only want to show up whenever AA asks to give the best adequate representation of this program that saved my life and to allow me to stand here and babble for an hour in front of as many people as you. You showed me what life was, and now you're letting me live it to a level that I never know existed. God bless all of you, and God bless alcoholics. Thanks for having me.